Hi, I'm Bex Dillon and welcome to this podcast, Conversations on Faith and Equality. On this podcast, me and um, my dad, Vicky Gumbel, got to interview Ninu Thomas. Now, like many people, as we've gone into lockdown, Zoom has become the thing that enables access to different people all over the world, and that's enabled us to keep going with the podcast. But it's also meant they've realised you don't even have to be in the same country as someone to be able to interview them. So I've been wanting to talk about India for a long time as it's a country that I really care deeply about being married to someone who is partly from India and my sister-in-law is Indian and I've lived in India twice. So I was really excited that we were able to persuade Ninu to do this podcast. Ninu is a friend who met in Bangalore. She's a very good friend of my brother and sister-in-law's and she is very inspiring. She grew up in Kerala in the south of India on a farm with her family and having finished her, the main part of her education, she moved to Bangalore to do a master's and specialising in medical and psychiatric social work. And soon after that, she started working for International Justice Mission, which is an organisation that comes from America, but works across the world, trying to end violence against those in poverty. And in India, that looks particularly at human trafficking. And Nini's work has involved bonded labour and those who are forced to work for a debt or because of some sort of form of slavery. And having worked in the area and helped rescue many people from exploitation in terms of labour work, she realised that most of them were turning to a state in the northeast called Orissa and that when they returned there, there was nothing really for them. So her and her husband have now moved to Orissa in order to help those who they've sent back there to sort of start life again and find opportunities. So now because Nini was, for this interview, was sitting in her car to avoid the cows and the other animals on the farm, the quality is not the best and I've done our best to try and um, edit it so that you can hear everything that she says and hopefully you can get her story. But I'm going to start and cut in where we talk about when she moved from Kerala to Bangalore. Now, she didn't grow up speaking English. She, like, um, you know, in India there are so many different languages and her local language is Malayalam. And that's the language that she studied in. But when she got to Bangalore, suddenly she was doing her master's in English. And you hear her tell the story. But it's she's quite remarkable and sort of gives you an insight into her character and what she's like and the drive that she has to fight for those that are sort of marginalised. So here you go and I hope you enjoy this podcast. When I moved to Bangalore it was really tough because I I was like wow like people from across the country even across the world there and uh, the classes in uh, my social school was completely in English uh, I told my dad after the first month that I'm coming back home because I can't take it anymore. My mm-hmm. dad said, you know, why don't you try one more month and see if you understand something. So, um, you know, eventually started understanding little by little. And um, a lot of my speaking, actually, I uh, working, um, you know, so where everybody spoke in English and I had to learn a little bit. So... Uh, that's where mostly I learned, actually. Um, so maybe it's been at least maybe six or seven years I started actually speaking English, um, you know, with people. 
That's amazing. So from not really speaking English, you're studying a master's in another language. Right, right, yeah. It was tough, I, I agree. I mean, I, I remember standing in the first uh, class for a presentation and I uh, used my paper sheets to, you know, explain my project. Uh, but the college is very strict about people speaking English. So my professor actually took, took the paper from my hand said you know what like you really have to sp try speaking in English and I cried in front of the class I'm like oh my gosh I can't do this because I can't really make one full sentence you know um, so uh, he's like you have to try you can't just read out of the paper sheet and then he said I'll give you another chance tomorrow so I went back to my college hostel and like literally um, you know read through it hundreds of times to just memorize the passage and whole project in my head and delivered in my class next day uh, so it was tough it was really tough and like get bullied because you know you're from this farm farm girl come to the college and you know trying to uh, pick up the language and you know all that sort of thing and I look back it's funny but it wasn't uh, fun to go through that for sure that's an amazing thing to be able to achieve. A master's in the language that's not your own mother tongue. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And when you say like bonded labourer and these labour workers, can you explain what that means their life is like in Bangalore and what they'd be doing? So uh, many of them are like daily wage workers. Um, so they... Uh, coming from different parts of the country to metro cities because there are much more job opportunities there. Mm -hmm. uh, many are unskilled laborers. Uh, many are also um, uh, not educated in a formal setting. So what happens is uh, generally they will be offered a job um, in their village through a contact or a middle person. Um, and uh, they'll come to the metro cities and most of the time they would do, um, you know, jobs like brick making or uh, construction jobs or household work. Um, it could be small factories making cloth or, um, you know, sk skills that can be quickly learned and can be executed quickly is what they generally follow through because um, these factories doesn't have so much, um, you know, they don't invest in laborers so much. Rather, they wanted to make sure that, you know, they get these uh, laborers support to uh, in production as quick and as cheap as possible. So unfortunately, when it says cheap and quick, sometimes they don't get their wages on time. They don't have the freedom to go out from their houses. Um, sometimes they don't have, you know, uh, they can't sell whatever they produce. They have to give it to the owner of the factory to, you know, go sell it out and get the profit. And a tiny bit of that uh, the laborers would receive. So um, they face many problems because of, you know, um, middlemen and they face a lot of problems because of the factory owners doesn't really, um, you know, align with the rules of the land. Mm. And I mean, we met in India and I was working for a, a different organization, but doing similar right. things. I yeah. remember going to 
but we, they were like, we're going to go to this factory where there are some children working. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I picked mm-hmm. like huge factories, you know, where there's like this big kind of industrial equipment. And we went into this right. tiny, tiny room where there were just right. like all the adults were around the edge with sewing machines. And then mm-hmm. the children who were like eight or nine had these huge scissors we're just like cutting, mm-hmm. doing all the leather cutting for the bags or not necessarily leather, whatever the fabric the bags were made from. And then they, they would give them to the adults who would sew them. But I think seeing that, I was like, mm-hmm. well, tiny, tiny place. This is what we call mm-hmm. it, factory on the floor, kind of cutting things. And those children yeah. were, yeah, probably like eight, nine years old, which is quite common. Yeah. Try to make profit in everything, be it space, be it labor be it the raw material safety equipment all those sort of things they try to cut edges because of uh, one lack of regulation also uh, because they feel that you know the impunity they don't they don't feel the need of it or uh, they don't see it as a problem mm-hmm. so um, that that's a huge issue actually right. and, and now with um, COVID-19 and the epidemic how is that affecting them? So, uh, country was in lockdown for a couple of months, actually. And the lockdown was announced like 8 p.m. a day and 12 p.m. onwards. That day onwards was the lockdown. So, literally, there was a gap of four hours. So, what happened is uh, many of the migrant laborers had no option of heading home because the transport, um, the job, everything was shut uh, in a matter of four hours. So um, a lot of people struggled a lot, especially with uh, not having jobs, not having you know savings because they don't have so much. You know they are meeting you know everyday needs with the daily wage they have. So hundreds of thousands of people, uh, many were walking home, thousands of kilometers stories of people like, um, you know, hungry and, you know, thirsty. Uh, Many didn't have homes because they couldn't afford to pay rent. So they had to vacate the houses to, you know, get out to the street. So um, the the initial situation was really, really hard, Um, you know, and the numbers just millions and millions. Every day they will be like, uh, new set of numbers coming out about people on the street, especially metro cities like Mumbai, Chennai, Delhi, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Kolkata, and uh, all these major cities had huge problems of migrants because, um, you know, almost 10 percentage of the GDP of India is contributed, um, you know, by the migrant laborers so mm-hmm. it was really tough to see you know every day pictures and stories and you know i i read a story where a mother gave birth to a baby on the side of the road and then she walked another 120 kilometer in the same day mm-hmm. um you know there were stories of um children you know fall on the side of the road and you know sad stories some died you know there was an accident where uh, migrant laborers were sleeping on the railway track and, uh, you know, train ran over them. Um, Mm -hmm. Or uh, migrant laborers die because there is no food and water. Uh, No, like, the complete transportation was shut down. 
but later the uh, you know supreme court saw the issue and you know um in the last last month or so government really took care of a lot of things like providing food for them a lot of charitable organizations also stepped in to help people and um, you know there were special trains from every state to um, you know help the migrant laborers mm-hmm. but i think by then many of them were like lost hope and you know were not really able to comprehend what's going on because um, many were not allowed to get into their houses because there was this whole you know rumor spread that people who are coming back from the cities coming with the infection so after going through all that they come back home they were not allowed and then there was um, you know um, institutional quarantine for all of them even with the government right like i don't think they saw the number of people they had to handle they are not you know equipped with the staff and they have so much going on right now with the covid issues so uh, quarantine and supporting migrants uh, also was a huge burden on the uh, government as well mm-hmm. um, so it was really tough mm-hmm. it was really tough yeah so you in bangalore you were working with all of these people who were had come through bonded labor or child labor and then I'm right in thinking most of those people you realized came from Arissa. Right, right. But so then were, you moved there. Right, right, right. So um, when I started working, uh, we started seeing a trend of mm. people from the northeast of India started coming down to um, major cities like Chennai and Bangalore. uh we had people from orissa we had people from bihar and chhattisgarh so initially we decided well we don't have a project running there so we'll send them back home mm-hmm. but when the numbers started increasing we started noticing that a pattern of you know people coming for a season down to bangalore for work um and we felt a bit guilty because we were like just sending them back home not doing anything much for them mm. so initially we started working with the uh, local partners in odisha to see if they can rehabilitate people and the number was just keep increasing and it wasn't just a trend from bangalore we started noticing that other offices uh, where we work like in delhi or in chennai we had a lot of people from odisha coming you know so uh you know we would rescue them send them back home uh but you know more and more we started understanding that you know um you know risa the seasonal migration is very common where they would cultivate because most of them are farmers they would cultivate for six months and then uh they would you know you know finish their cultivation and then look for a job because they don't have enough water to do like a second round of cultivation and um this is becoming a pattern for them so there are uh, middlemen who would tell them oh there is this job in this particular city why don't you come with us they would sign up for it and move um we also started seeing the pattern where um rehabilitation looks a little different here because you know this is a migrant community so the needs that we have to address uh, are different to have a house when they come back home or making sure they know what what their rights are so that next time when they migrate they are safely migrating 
so that's kind of where we are like okay well if we wanted to do furthermore we have to have something in odisha based so 2013 we started our uh, project in odisha supporting the you know um laborers then two years uh, ago I, i figured out like you know it's better um for us to move in there because i was traveling up and down quite a bit uh in the initial days so now i'm based in bhuvaneshwar actually that's the capital city of odisha and um now you're there because you're responsible for all of the people that have gone back to rissa that you're in charge of 50% of the victims that have been rescued by ijm True. that's 50% of the whole the global victims you now care for because they all come yeah. for us that's crazy right. that's true how many victims yeah, how true. many is that you know how many people is that so we have rehabilitated over like, almost close to 6000 people now uh through our aftercare program okay from 2013 to 2020 Could you just describe what life is like in arissa what what are people going home to right so um you know most of the odisha about 60% of odisha's um you know uh, on inmates all people there depends on agriculture and we have a lot of mines so it's a rich city a lot of beautiful um you know celebration festivals also we have a lot of um you know history um you know, in odisha so um long back people were so self sustained um it was like you know they produce whatever they need they um you know stay in smaller communities uh they had strong bond so they could take care of each other so the protection was there and then um you know in the 60s with the green revolution many of those farmlands were turned into rice paddies and rice field and it was a good profitable business for them for a long term time but then later rice was you know produced way too much so the uh the 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 price started coming down or not increasing as much as they wanted to so they were in mm-hmm. making a lot of profit so now this poor people who were completely depending on rice uh had to figure out you know sustainable other options so mm-hmm. their land was already been overused for rice and you know they didn't have enough water so 6 months they could produce rice but the other 6 months they had to figure out some other option and many of these uh laborers where we work with they are from scheduled caste and scheduled tribe um so that is a category in the so they are generally to the um you know lower class strata in the economy side so um you know they they are already been exploited you know long time and now even more because they are unable to produce in their own land mm-hmm. um government actually put a lot of support for them in education and different areas but um you know after all if you don't have food to eat at home you know uh, you would take any sort of risk and poverty is one of the major reason why they actually migrate 
um, you know, I worked with so many people. I always asked them, why would you go out of your village? And they would say like, you know, it's just because we don't have anything to eat. I mean, it comes down to that level. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's one of the highest, uh, you know, group of people migrate just because they are poor and unable to, you know, afford to eat three times a day. Um, so that's kind of why, you know, um, a huge migration from there as well, because people are literally looking for food and they will take any risk. They wouldn't really, I mean, you know, government always say there are so many precautions that you could take. Why won't, why wouldn't you do that? And they would be like, well, you know, to me, when somebody says that, but if your priority is just that day's meal, you would always take any risk because you are hungry. Um, so um, many of these families are actually very poor. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's that's how it is. And isn't um, suicide in India is highest amongst the farming communities. Is that right? Right. Yeah, yes. And also farming is not a uh, profitable business, unfortunately, because you know, farmers are generally in the villages and the middlemen would come and take their products and they get very limited. And I know myself because I, I'm also a farmer's daughter and I understand and mm. see it, especially now that I'm here, I see that, you know, things that I buy in the city is like 10 times high the price. But when they produce and they sell it, they sell it to a middle person who takes this, you know, for like very, very cheap. And um, so, you know, unfortunately, farmers are not able to get enough to survive. And they ended up taking loans and end up, you know, you know, not having anything and, you know, end their life, unfortunately. How many people do you think now are without food in, um, in India? What, what proportion of the population with COVID-19 uh, are without food? Right. So, Right. So, you know, when the government did a study, they said around, um, you know, around 35 to 40 percent, they said, of, you know, migrant in some level. But I do not know actually exactly the number of people, though. I could, uh, you know, check around and let you know, because I actually don't know exactly how many people would that be, um, you know, without food. But I, what I noticed... Yeah, but I noticed though when, um, you know, when the lockdown happened, so many people actually was walking on the road without food. So um, that number for, so for Odisha, there was a registration by the government to ask people if you'd want to come back, you know, register themselves. And uh, 11 lakh people, lakh is million, isn't it, Bex? Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm, no, it lacks yeah. um, so, 10,000. Oh, okay. So, okay, 11 lakhs people actually. So that's um, 1 million. You know, yeah. Yeah, they actually registered to come back home. Um, yeah. So, you know, that was tough to watch because they initially, the uh, in their uh, media press, conference they said they're looking at one lakh and 11 lakh registered so um definitely it was a lot of people 
Mm. And probably, if, so did you say that in India, the daily wage workers is how much percent of the country? I, I think I read 35. And most of those people, therefore, their work had stopped, right, in lockdown. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. they probably would have been struggling for food. Most A lot of them were on the roads. Yeah. yeah. But also without work. And it's also just, you know, unskilled laborers. Mm. Skilled laborers also lost a lot of them, lost their jobs because of the, you know, economy and, you know, it wasn't uh, feasible for many companies to have massive production and, uh, you know, work. So even skilled laborers lost their jobs as, as well. Mm. And is the government now able to help a lot of those people or are people still struggling? Right. So in the last one month, the government has been able to handle it really well because, you know, there was a huge outcry for, you know, people to get help because, um, you know, there was a huge outcry about people uh, because they were seeing, you know, stories after stories, almost every newspaper for weeks reported mm-hmm. on like the plight of migrants. So then government was able to, um, you know, actually court intervene and ask the government to take action on it and said that anybody who wants to go home must be uh, given a chance to go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and transport was arranged by the government's uh, and also trains were running, given them proper food and quarantine centers were opened up. Um, so right now, I think, um, you know, many people got help, but the initial mm. two months were really tough. Really and you were involved in sort of responding to those needs, weren't you? Right, right. So to help some uh, 2,200 people, um, you know, to get home, coordinating with the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been also helping with uh, food supplies, um, transportation. Uh, we also helping the government officials with uh, protective equipments, um, like sanitizers and masks, so that, you know, they are protected while they are going out. So we've been doing a lot of different work with them to, you know, support you know, the little that we can. What's what's the state now? So with the migrant laborers, uh, it's hard to say if it is improving because they're all back home. They have to find a job. That's one of the biggest priorities for them because they don't have any job now. Uh, they have to feed their families. So right now, most of them are receiving support from the government uh, through ration and other support. Um, and you know, priority for the government right now, more than employment, it is to, you know, combat the issue of COVID and all the, you know, COVID-related infections and, you mm. know, controlling that is government's priority. So for migrant, it's not a good news because um, millions of them are back home and, you know, they don't have an employment right now. So I think uh, it, with regards to the food supplies they have been able to get it because um you know government is supporting but it's not for a long term because they have to find a job mm-hmm. um so i think it's like mixed because they are safe at least back home but at the same time it's a worry for them about the future and tomorrow mm-hmm.
it's quite a challenge you have, Nini. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, but there is hope too because, um, you know, um, there are there are a lot of people actually. I mean, e- even if it looks like millions and we are only able to help a couple of thousand people, but, you know, those thousands are at least doing better now because they mm-hmm. they were able to get some sort of support from the government. Our team was able to advocate for them with housing and, you know, ration, even ration, right? Like uh, when we started the project, majority of them didn't have the ration card to receive support, you know, supplements from the government. But when COVID hit, we were like, oh my gosh, are people going to have food at their house? When we did the survey, we figured out except 27, rest of the 6,000 had those cards. So their food was taken care of by the government. So mm-hmm. one big part of it, right? At least you can make sure that, okay, this 27, we would make sure food is been arranged and, you know, supplied it to their house. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I know it's very small and it's very small tip of an iceberg but you know even that made me so happy because at least yeah. you know we could do something and small step at a time and you know yeah we'll get and there. as you said to be to for them just to be able to have food is the main sometimes the main concern right, 6, right. What, what food would the government give them the six thousand so uh they have a certain um, you know, list of things they would give them rice and dal and, um, you know, sugar or, you know, basic uh, tea powder uh, for them to make tea and like, you know, some sort of uh, wheat powder for them to make some sort of basic stuff. So they have a list of things that they provide mm-hmm. and salt and you know, chili powder. So whatever that is uh, needed for a family to sustain. And each of the member in the house get five kilo of rice because most of our, um, you know, community is, um, you know, depends on rice actually. So they get each member five kilo rice for the month. So they have at least some, you know, rice and uh, lentils uh, mainly to, you know, sustain. Wow, it's, it's not very much though, not, not a huge amount of food. Not not huge amount of food, just for sustainability, at least for, uh, you know, not feel too hungry. Yes. Mm. Oh, yeah. Really hard, isn't it? That's so hard. Yeah. So it is hard. Sad. And the scale of it too, the millions of people. Right. I mean, right. 35%, you say, are day, day workers. Right, right. And most of them have lost their jobs. Yes, because, um, you know, um, because of COVID and because, you know, they were able to work anywhere and the job availability uh, in their villages are very, very, you know, less. Um, so, yeah, that's been happening. Do you think more people are dying of COVID-19 or more people are dying of hunger? So right now, um, you know, as far as I understand right now, the, you know, number is definitely high with COVID. Uh, but the the issue is the future. 
and issue also becomes like you know tracking of details um the the concentration of um you know government is heavily on covid right now so that scares me because um i mean of course i understand why but at the same time uh, employment of people um the the concentration is on covid 19 and i understand why it's so but um the the future is a bit scary with the that many people yeah. you know losing job millions yeah. of people losing jobs yeah. and um you know supporting their families will come difficult on that yeah mm. and what job opportunities are there in Arizona at the moment right now um you know a lot of people depends on agriculture so you know from uh, thankfully they it will rain in maybe next 10 or 15 days the monsoon will start so they will have um, you know rice cultivation happens and uh, generally they migrate in the month of august and september but you know right now looking at the scenario i don't think uh, the country will be opened up for um, you know jobs uh in august or september so you know we will have to really watch out for what will happen then because the land will dry up so there won't be any daily wage jobs in odisha um and you know even if they have you know payment will be an issue because everyone else also struggling through the same sort of problems mm. especially industries so i also don't know i it, it looks scary um it it's it's really hard to imagine what would be like for the migrant population and they've been doing it for like um, at least 40 50 years generation they've been doing that so um yeah it's just it's just tough i mean you are so determined like that story of you managing to do your masters in english and henry my brother was saying that when you were applying for your passport you were like there's no way i'm paying a bribe so you had to keep going what how did you get it in the end um so yeah like i just had to keep making calls and you know um keep uh, pushing for it it took a long time um because it's really hard it's just really hard uh without paying up and you know i was determined that i'm not going to pay up i i knew that you know even if i'm going i need to wait i just going to wait for it so you know keep pushing and keep pushing and it's not easy but you know um yeah and like god is good and just keep keep going keep going small step at a time <laughs> I think yeah. Oh, you're amazing. Oh, you're doing an amazing job. I think it's amazing what you're doing. And it's such Thank a tough time. Um and yeah, so please. grateful that you're doing that and must yeah. be so many people who are who are thankful for what you're doing who are probably alive because of what you're doing and you're you're and and so many others who are not hungry because of what you're doing. and others who are Thank not under so labor because of what you're doing so what you're doing is extraordinary and wonderful and mm. um uh yeah you're you're 
a real hero to do all of that and amazing. Takes great yeah. courage and um, determination and integrity not to, you know, not to be willing to pay bribes and to get their quick solutions. So, um, thank you so much for that. It's so yeah. lovely to thank see you. you. Yeah, thank you so much, Nina. Yes. Thank you. Yes, so thank much. you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast conversations on faith inequality we hope that you've enjoyed it please tell your friends about it like subscribe and hopefully there'll be more coming soon bye